This episode is brought to you by EarthBreeze, the one New Year's resolution I've ever been able to stick to. It's completely transformed my laundry experience. Gone are the big, heavy plastic jugs, the measuring out of detergent every time. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze wash sheet. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze eco sheet. It looks just like a dryer sheet, except it's slightly less dry. It's ultra concentrated detergent. I throw it in the wash and that's it. Never think about it again. Laundry comes out great, clean, fresh smelling, no harmful chemicals or bleaches or dyes or anything in there. If you want to change up your laundry game this year, right now my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled, that's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Today marks the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, which started in large part as a reaction to what was at the time the country's largest oil spill off the coast of Santa Barbara in California. So it seemed fitting to me to put out our Louisiana episode today, because this week also marks the 10th anniversary of the BP oil spill. Louisiana is still reeling from that spill and various other oil industry impacts. We've gotten a few tips for our climate COVID-19 policy tracker about Louisiana that I wanted to dig into. Because in Louisiana, it's not just that there are over 50,000 oil wells in the state's wetlands. It's not even just about the BP spill or Hurricane Katrina. It's also the petrochemical plants and the refineries that pollute what's now called Cancer Alley. And it's the way fossil fuel money has infiltrated everything from schools to jazz fest. A study that came out from Harvard earlier this month correlated exposure to a particular type of air pollution. It's called PM 2.5 or soot, the stuff that's belched out of refineries and power plants and out of car exhaust pipes with an increased risk of death from COVID-19. So the same people who are vulnerable to a hurricane exacerbated by climate change and have higher rates of asthma and cancer because they live near refineries and petrochemical plants are also more likely to die in this pandemic. I also wanted to do a Louisiana episode this week because I was supposed to be in New Orleans right now. Today, speaking to people at the Fossil Free Festival. It's a conference convened by Antana, a local artist and writer collective, focused on having what one of the organizers, Imani Brown, calls the tough conversations about fossil fuels and climate change. Those tough conversations involve artists and writers because so much of the city's and the state's arts and culture funding comes from the fossil fuel industry. Since Katrina and the BP spill, not only have many public entities and services been privatized, often in ways that benefit industry over people, but also the oil and gas companies have increasingly pumped philanthropic dollars into Louisiana's local institutions. Seems nice at first, right? But it's created a dependency that makes it really hard to hold those companies accountable. 
According to BP Vice President Deb Sanyal, corporate funding of civic institutions grants these corporations a, quote, social license to operate. This is something that we talk a lot about on this show. Society grants these companies and these industries license and trust that the benefits they provide to the public outweigh the costs. In its 1988 report, The Greenhouse Effect, Shell confirmed that climate change triggered by the carbon economy could lead to, quote, adaptation, migration, and replacement of populations, which would be costly and uncertain, but could be made acceptable. Today, Shell claims that by funding New Orleans' famous Jazz Fest, recently renamed the Jazz and Heritage Festival presented by Shell. The company makes New Orleans communities resilient and sustainable, distorting the fact that its operations make those communities both economically and ecologically unsustainable. Since I couldn't be in New Orleans to have that conversation, we're going to have it here today. Imani Brown is here, and we're also joined by Ann Rolfs, founding director of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade, and Scott Eustace, community science director of Healthy Gulf. That conversation is coming up right after this quick word from today's sponsor. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less, and we all know it's not going to (laughs) happen. But one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing EarthBreeze. I know you're thinking laundry is not so fun. Those huge, heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze Eco Sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring, there's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean. It smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes. So it's perfect for every load. You'll never run out of detergent again, thanks to Earth Breeze's easy, flexible subscription. You can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Plus shipping is always free and Eco Sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. It also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over 100 million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 40 for zero. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription.
Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. curious to hear what um what's kind of been happening in your neck of the woods in the last month or so lord (laughs) it's probably a lifetime of events that's scott eustace he's a scientist who works with the nonprofit healthy gulf trying to keep coastal wetlands safe just realize we have a new climate that we're dealing with we just had an easter storm uh, where people passed away in, in northern louisiana we've got a high river right now coming off of 2019, which was the highest, longest river flood in recorded history. So that's happening, as well as the the public health emergency, as well as, you know, the oil industry in free fall, which is kind of its own independent and weird and horrible thing. And they're taking, really, they're washing their debt in this public health crisis. And I don't know if you have a better answer. Well, the the oil prop the oil price plunging predated corona, right? I mean, right. corona's exacerbating it, but they have a yeah. you know, global yeah. problem and a and a business model problem at this point. I would say, well, it's nice to meet you, Amy. That's Ann Rolfs who runs the nonprofit Louisiana Bucket Brigade. Their focus is stopping pollution in the state. What we're seeing is the petrochemical industry on steroids doing what they usually do, which is to take advantage of a crisis for their own benefit. So one example is the fact that just as, as, this, as the shutdowns started all over the country, the American Petroleum Institute wrote a letter to Donald Trump, that was on March 20th, and asked for rules to be relaxed, right? This is clearly a request that they had in their files already. They see right. Corona happen, they grab that letter, they submit it to him, and six days later, those rules are relaxed. Yeah. And, you know, obviously contrast this to the requests that have been made here for a long time by communities along Cancer Alley. You know, years go by and you can't get children in a, in a grammar school protected, but you know, less than a week, the American Petroleum Institute gets its way. So I would say that's the first thing is that they're capitalizing on the crisis for their own, you know, their own benefit. And then secondly, is that um, in particular in St. James Parish, Formosa Plastics took this occasion to begin construction. This is, would be one of the largest plastics plants in the world. In the United States, it's the largest proposed source of greenhouse gases in the country. And what do they do on the first day of of our stay at home order here in Louisiana? They start laying utility poles for their construction. So 
it's what usually happens in a crisis, right? Uh, the things get worse. Yeah. And yeah, uh, happily, the I think the community response is commensurate. In St. James, it's local people led by Sharon Levine who saw them constructing and, and put a halt to it. And then likewise with the bigger problem along Cancer Alley, there's the Coalition Against Death Alley, the Concerned Citizens of St. John, Justice and Beyond, you know, the Bucket Brigade is involved, a lot of groups who are exposing and, and talking about the, what's happening. You said Sharon saw them constructing and put a stop to it. What, what exactly happened there? Yeah, good question. So on, on Monday, March 23rd was the Louisiana statewide stay-at-home order, the commencement of that. And on that day, Sharon Levine was driving like a lot of her neighbors to go get her last run of groceries, pick up her medications. And along River Road, the, the road right next to the Mississippi River, she finds that it, it, one lane is shut down. It's a two-lane highway. The stay-at-home order is supposed to go into effect at five o'clock that night. Everybody's going out for their last run for essentials. And yet traffic is backed up and she doesn't understand why. And then finally she gets you know, inches forward in line and realizes, oh my gosh, the holdup is at the, is at the Formosa plastic site and sees various trucks. And so there was some confusion there, right? She sees various trucks on the site. She sees utility poles, but you know, you know, there's nothing of course that says Formosa Plastics is beginning today, right? And so she came back, you know, we talked on the phone and we're, we're trying to figure out what's going on. So we made a number of calls to try to understand and get confirmation about whether or not it was Formosa Plastics. From experience, we felt very confident that it was because we know it's very like the petrochemical industry to capitalize on a crisis for its own gain. So we felt confident it was, but we didn't have proof that it was. Mm. And so uh, we called around, we called our attorneys, they called Formosa's attorneys here in New Orleans. Formosa's attorneys actually said, we don't know, we have to call Taiwan. That's where the company is based. And that's what we're dealing with here. And so we never did get a straight answer from them. I know Scott reached out to the court, didn't get a straight answer. Well, they said no, but it was a very precise question. <laughs> and, then, and then on Wednesday, we went out and did a Facebook Live and Sharon was the speaker in that Facebook Live. And it was because of a journalist follow-up questions that we were able to get confirmation that in fact it was Formosa Plastics. I should add that we also right. talked to parish officials. They didn't know, right? And so this is the, the situation we're dealing with, this vagueness and confusion, you know, what's going on. And then I will say too, that when it did come out that, you know, in fact, it is Formosa Plastics, they really distorted the facts of the matter. Entergy, who was laying the utility pole, said that we're an essential service, hmm. which is of course okay. true, a utility is, but not to build a plastics plant. And then what Formosa said was, oh, you know, we're going to make, we're going to make um, blood bags and things for healthcare, mm. which nobody, ah. you know, they've never said that before. They're going to make plastic pellets. Right. And even if they were going to make useful stuff, it wouldn't be ready for half a decade. So, you know, just right. distortions all the way through. Ultimately, construction on the Formosa plastics plant was forced to stop, mainly because Sharon Levine, director of the local environmental justice group Rise St. James, saw that construction happening and started asking questions about it. Here's Scott Eustace again. They were digging into the toe of a levee and placing poles into the levee uh, during a river flood, which is not allowed and was not allowed, and they knew it was not allowed. Um, as long as the river is higher than a certain gauge, but no one was really watching, um, you know, the, and no one was really enforcing the, the river levy permit. 
except Michelle. <laughs> There's all this confusion about what is essential work. You know, at a time when oil industry is supposed to be essential workers, why are so many of them laid off? So many people are laid off without pay. And uh, at least from the refinery angle, there's been a lot of pollution events in the last month or so. And often what you see is the, the plants are still reporting pollution events for, for what we, as far as we know. And the ones that I've seen in the last month have to do with power outages where the plant loses power. It seems like they've laid off all the contractors, all the non-union labor who run the emergency generators. So when we've been getting these storms in the last month, they don't have emergency generators. And so we've had a lot of upsets at the CF Industries plant in Donaldsonville. And then most recently we had a stack explosion at the Bolero refinery in St. Bernard. Mm. And the, the investigations are ongoing into that. Normally, you know, in the long term, we do rely on fines and the EPA to fine a company to make sure that they have better processes. It, it's been a chronic problem, uh, of course, as Anne and Bucket Brigade have documented for years. But we're just seeing more of that in this kind of confluence of the industry wanting to lay everyone off that they can because of the debt problems and the, the public health considerations and then the, the kind of weather emergencies that right. we're beginning to see as we go into the hurricane season. Right, right. What kind of response have you seen from, I, I know I saw this letter um, asking the state government to shut down petrochemical plants during this. What has the response been, if, if anything, and, and what are, what's kind of happening with the petrochem guys right now? Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, the plants are shutting down. You can shut off in a bad way or you could shut off in a safe way, and they're doing it the bad way because the plants are not shutting down out of some consideration for public health. They're shutting down because let's take Exxon Mobil, you know, they make, they're an oil refinery. They make things like gasoline and other fuels. The product almost has a negative value at this moment in time. So just from a financial perspective, the companies are trying to just They've been laying people off as fast as possible and trying to shut down production where really we need everyone who keeps those plants safe and keeps the air pollution low. On the other hand, there's all these construction of new projects, which is probably, which like Anne was saying, it's technically quote unquote essential, but uh, we really need to reevaluate um, uh, 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 whether or not all, you know, all of these plants are at all essential uh, in the new economic moment. Um, even before, oh, as Anne was saying, like even before, you know, the, the global reduction in demand for fossil fuels and plastics uh, that we've had since March, we've uh, take the Formosa plastics proposal. China instituted a single-use plastics ban in January 2020 before the public health emergency that would eliminate uh, millions and millions of tons of plastics demand, basically eliminating the economic need for something like the Formosa plastics plant. And yet we're seeing that they're moving forward 
with construction, even unbeknownst to them, apparently. <laughs> They're moving forward with construction. But, and other things as well, such as some of the LNG construction sites in Calcasieu and Cameron Parish are moving forward with hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, even though it's quite unclear if there's any demand for the, the, the product that you know, in, in five to eight years would be exported out of these facilities. The air pollution that these facilities create uh, over the long term, they've weakened our lungs in Louisiana, and they're making us more vulnerable. Imani Brown with Antana points to this as part of a broader problem, one that was there before COVID-19 and will be there after, and a conversation that the state's residents really need to have about what sort of place they want to live in. You know, any conversation about whether there is demand for these petrochemical products, of course, has to take into consideration, you know, the fact that demand is created and demand is in large part a result of supply. And all of these plastics that are being produced in Cancer Alley are, you know, made from the waste of the fossil fuel production process. Mm -hmm. So rather than actually, not that there's any, you know, quote unquote, safe way to handle petrochemical waste, fossil fuel waste, right? You know, essentially we're being denied any evidence of the, of the cost to society and we're being yes. constantly beaten over the head with this message about the benefits. If, if, you know, in this particular heightened crisis of coronavirus, if we're recognizing that the petrochemical industry is putting residents in the, pet- in the petrochemical corridor at greater risk of suffering the worst consequences of coronavirus, this is creating one of the highest mortality rates in the country, right, in the world, mm-hmm. uh, to coronavirus. If we're recognizing that that's happening now, and we're not willing to actually, you know, put a moratorium on the output of these industries, because we realize that human life in this moment takes precedence over the economy, which we're seeing across the world, we're seeing economic sacrifices for the benefit of public health, right? But we're not willing to do that in this state. We're not willing to have an open conversation about whether that is even, you know, like a a viable or a desirable action to take, right, to mitigate this impact of coronavirus, right? Like, I mean, like, what, what is the hope for these communities on a normal day? I mean, we have to go back to Katrina with this, right, because we used to have one of the, I think the second oldest public hospital in the U.S., if not the oldest, right, Charity Hospital, that was, I mean, the subject of an immense scandal after Katrina, but it was effectively shuttered for no reason and closed in order to be privatized. The whole city, right, was privatized after Katrina. Like this, you know, Katrina was was a crisis that uh, was seen as an opportunity to use our, like, you know, then governor's exact language, you know, and it was an opportunity to really flip the economic script in in Louisiana to push out a lot of Louisiana's, you know, poor Black residents to retain as many folk as they needed to, like, power this tourist economy. But, you know, to really, to to really try to experiment in new ways of, you know, uh, kind of sucking profit out of every possible sector. So we had, you know, the privatization of public housing, of public schools, the public hospital. So these like conversations about like, you know, why is it that the industry is able to 
keep sucking out subsidies and, you know, getting all getting a pass and like getting defended and getting bailed out constantly at, you know, the expense of, of Louisiana's and, you know, the, the country. Yes, Louisiana has been captured by the fossil fuel industry, but, you know, the, the industry occupies basically the same place in, in Louisiana's economy and culture uh, that slavery did. I think it's really just important to be specific about the way that the fossil fuel industry has carried over the sort of economic, environmental, spatial, social legacies of colonialism and slavery, that when we're speaking about this region that Anne and Scott have described, you know, that is known locally as Cancer Alley, that has the highest rates of cancer in the U.S., according to most recently a year-long Guardian study, right, that has over 200 petrochemical plants and refineries kind of in the area between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, a 70-mile kind of the crow flies kind of area. We have to recognize that these 200 plants and refineries are literally occupying the footprints of former sugarcane plantations that mm-hmm. were powered by enslaved labor. That'll cast a really long shadow over the sudden surge of fossil fuel philanthropy in the state over the past decade or so. The crucial thing with, you know, all of this philanthropy is that any donation comes with, you know, a mandated logo. Logos are everywhere. They're plastered uh, on the facades of buildings. So the Chevron Forum at uh, a local high school called NOCA, the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, has a giant Chevron logo on it. Any, uh, the, Fr- the French Quarter Festival has been rebranded as the New Orleans French Quarter Festival presented by Chevron in one breath. The Jazz Fest is now New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival presented by Shell. Right. Shell and Chevron's logos are on every volunteer t-shirt, on all merchandise, on the banners that hang from the massive stages that, you know, have historically, especially with Jazz Fest, been named after cultural icons in New Orleans and so are now plastered with the logos of the industries that are literally destroying the state from within. There's a, there's a real malignance to this philanthropy, which is, is presenting these oil companies as the saviors of society, right? Like Shell literally says on their website that their funding of Jazz Fest makes New Orleans more sustainable and more resilient since Hurricane Katrina. Even though we know that oil and gas activities, you know, contribute to seasonal hurricanes being stronger than ever before. We have this this messaging and these logos that are proliferating the public sphere that serve, on the one hand, as a very successful distraction from the violence of fossil fuel production, right? It's a look over here kind of strategy. It creates a sense of dependency, right? That like without you know, these oil companies, the social fabric of Louisiana would crumble. And it creates what the industry is very overt about, uh, something called a social license to operate. And BP's, you probably reported on this before, BP's vice president, Dev Sanyal, has like articulated this very directly, right? That in today's world, oil companies cannot operate sustainably without the support of society. And, you know, the the idea is that allegedly society is saying that the benefits, you know, here we go again, the benefits of these activities outweigh the cost. Well, you know, I don't remember any conversation that we've ever been a part of where we've actually like 
you know, sat down, listed out the costs and benefits and said, actually, yeah, like, let's, let's go with it, right? Yeah. So this is all metaphorical, but for VP's Vice President Dev Daniel and others, this metaphorical, you know, like theoretical license, you know, is, is really all they need because they know that the affective power of these logos is immense. Fossil fuel logos and the philanthropy are as essential to fossil fuel production as any pipeline, as any rig, as, as any other form of infrastructural equipment, right? It is um, a part of industry. It's really important to know what people in Louisiana are dealing with and just how entrenched the industry is there. This point that Amani makes that it's one of the largest fossil fuel states and also one of the poorest states in the country is a really good counter argument to what the fossil fuel industry talks about a lot, which is the amount of, you know, wealth and benefit that it brings to the places that it operates. But it's also important for people to realize that a lot of folks in Louisiana and other big oil states are fighting really hard to change things because we don't always hear about those fights. And sometimes they're winning. Here's Scott Eustace again. The situation is desperate in many angles, but local people are fighting back. And when we win, we win big. So I would just like the listeners to your podcast to realize that the majority of us in the Gulf Coast are fighting these things. We, we know we just need uh, outside help because there's uh, a lot of forces arrayed against us. When you think about the Green New Deal, right, a lot of those discussions happened without us. So we've come together to talk about Gulf South for a Green New Deal because as desperate as our working population is, as on edge as it is, everything changes extremely quickly. Even if you look at something like offshore wind, you know, it's our welders building the substructure for Block Island wind off Rhode Island. It's right. our engineering firms doing the mid that wasn't planned. Even those firms don't even like to talk about it too much because it goes against the grain of all of the public pressure to politically support the oil industry. Right. But I would just put a call out to your listeners to, to help us join us because when things change and they will and they are, uh, they happen here in Texas and Louisiana first. it for this time. Thanks for joining us. We have plenty more episodes coming for you in our There Will Be Fraud season. This rush to leverage the pandemic on behalf of the fossil fuel industry has only been speeding up in the last few weeks. And actually, there's a reason for that, a really obscure and kind of boring reason, but an important one, which we'll get into next week back for that episode. In the meantime, please continue sending your tips for the policy tracker. Those can go to pitches at drillednews.com. And thank you so much to all of you who are supporting us either through the Patreon or our newsletter on Substack or through one-time donations. It's going straight into the production of this podcast, reporting on policy rollbacks and stories on the Drilled News website. If you want to support us, there are multiple ways to do that. And we've listed them all at drillednews.com support dash us. I'll drop that link in the show notes as well. And you're not just supporting our reporting. You'll also get access to ad-free podcast episodes and a preview of upcoming stories and episodes. A word about member benefits here. 
We thought long and hard about members-only content and decided that we just don't want any of our reporting to be inaccessible to anyone who can't afford to pay for it, especially right now. So while members might have access a bit sooner and without ads, your support also enables us to get our reporting out to everyone. We're very open to suggestions for other things we might do with the member program, so get in touch if you have ideas. I'm amy at drillednews.com. You can also tweet at us at wearedrilled. And don't forget to check out drillednews.com for additional reporting on all of the issues that we cover in the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.